Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener is subtitled A Story of Wall Street, yet there is almost nothing in it of the bustle of city life, and entirely nothing in it of the hustle of the trading floor. The story's walls entirely block out the streets, serving on the one hand as a container for a colorful assortment of human Xerox machines, and on the other as a blank projection screen for the reveries of a man who seems to quietly rebel against the very concept of imitation. Can we continue to live and work if we strongly prefer to do nothing that is derivative? What happens to our aspirations if we come to fully appreciate the gravity of fate? Could we continue to tell our own stories if we were liberated from all idiosyncrasies of character? This is Wes Alwyn. And this is Aaron Alonik. And you're listening to Subtext. So Aaron, I think if I had to choose a title for this book, it would be uh, not Bartleby, but Dead Wall Reveries, which is, um, <laughs> there's a few phrases I really like in the book, but that I think it would also be a great name for a band. <laughs> that would be. I'm like, I can't believe this is just sitting there in the text. This has got to be, this should be a title. It's funny that you should say that because I think I told you offline at some point that I teach this story or taught now, former teacher, um, taught the story every year to my high school students, my 10th graders. Mm-hmm. And I always gave pop quizzes or not always, but that, you know, frequently gave pop quizzes like the morning after they were assigned a reading and I'd always try to trip them up with a painfully obvious question. So one of the frequent ones I used was like, who wrote this? <laughs> and they would ignore the, the name of the author. But for Bartleby, I always asked, what, is, what was the subtitle? And they never knew. And somehow, not only would they forget the subtitle, but they always forgot where the story was set, that it was set in Wall Street. And I had to explain to them that was really crucial because <laughs> they didn't seem to think that it was important at all. Just like they didn't seem to think it was important that Melville wrote it or <laughs> anything like That's- that. So, yeah, but I think if I had to title this, what would I title? No matter how dissimilar, I, I always see a continuity or at least some surprising thematic crossover between and among episodes that are adjacent to each other. And as we've been talking and thinking about alien, certain similarities presented themselves to me. So, so maybe uh, space invader. I don't, I don't mm. know. Oh, I love that. <laughs> something, love that. something space like invader. That. that would be a great adaptation of this. Actually, <laughs> short <laughs> film. Um, all right. I want to take your quiz now. The subtitle, it's either a Wall Street story or a story of Wall Street. That's right. I would have accepted either one. one. (laughs) Which one (laughs) is it? A a story of Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, because there's there really is very little of Wall Street in this, right? There's not there's one scene where you get a sense of the hustle and bustle of the city. That's the scene where Bartleby is actually being escorted off to prison, to the tombs. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of, when I did my first reading, I kind of got the sense that this was a raucous crowd, right? Some of them were arm in arm with Bartleby and that they were, maybe there was something sadistic about this when he was being hauled off to jail. And then when I reread it doing my notes, I saw that it's actually, they're silent. Let me just read the part here that's relevant. As I afterwards learned, the poor Scrivener, when told that he must be conducted to the tombs, offered not the slightest obstacle, but in his pale, unmoving way, silently acquiesced. 
some of the compassionate and curious bystanders joined the party. And headed by one of the constables arm-in-arm with Bartleby, the silent procession filed its way through all the noise and heat and joy of the roaring thoroughfares at noon. Which is a sentence I really loved. And yeah, I see now, even rereading this, it's a constable who's arm-in-arm with Bartleby. I I think I was imagining like a bystander on either side of him and people being somewhat raucous and, and making light of it all. But really, it's silent. And I guess the, the bystanders feel allied to him in some sense. But anyway, just the contrast of the silence of that procession and then that sense that we get of the noise, the heat, and joy of the roaring thoroughfares at noon. I think that might be the only real sense of, that we get of I think what our stereotype of Wall Street would be, which is the kind of busy hustle and bustle of the city at day. There, there is one other mention of the of the contrast between the city at day and the city at night. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just after where the, the narrator finds Bartleby living in the office and reassures himself that he would not be sitting down at the desk in any state approaching nudity. And then when he gets back there, he figures out that Bartleby has been living there and reflects on his friendlessness and his loneliness and his poverty. And so he says, think of it. Of a Sunday, Wall Street is deserted as Petra. And every night of every day, it is an emptiness. This building too, which of the weekdays hums with industry and life, at nightfall echoes with sheer vacancy and all through Sunday is forlorn. And here Bartleby makes his home, sole spectator of a solitude which he has seen all populous, a sort of innocent and transformed Marius brooding among the ruins of Carthage. So um, I guess when you directed our attention to the subtitle of the story, the idea that it's a story of Wall Street, I was... I guess my project was to show that there really wasn't much of Wall Street. I guess there's enough now that I've found it, now that I've looked for the places where it, it, he gives it some characterization. I think its lack of character is one of its characteristics. Mm. The, the more I read this story, the more I think it's a story about zoning or city planning or something like that. <laughs> it's a business district whose opposite, I suppose, is a bedroom, right? And uh, so you have people who come into the business district for work during the day and who leave at a certain time, leaving the business district completely abandoned after certain hours and abandoned on Sundays, as, as Melville writes. And then you have the bedroom community, which is the place where you just go to sleep. So you have the two different zones of your life are very clearly marked. And so the idea that someone has invaded business with bedrooms it seems to be like the the mm. one of the main transgressions that's happening here it's interesting i i worked in the financial district from 2000 to 2002 mm-hmm. and um it was the same way this characteristic this thing that melville was describing was absolutely true at the time and I, I think it probably still is true maybe even more so now after covid but this weird contrast, so busy during the day, so crammed full of people, and then completely deserted at night. So I don't know, what are we supposed to make of that? There's something about that contrast that is important here, and something about the contrast between associations between human beings, which are based on business, and and then something that is actually more 
more intimate. Yeah, there's a, it's about the rhythms of life. And I think something too is here about the kind of work that they're doing that is that plays into this too. In a way, Bartleby is like re-injecting some sort of vitality into this, into this dead area by living there. So when we have these two zones of, and I'm, I'm not using this in the like literal zoning way, we have these two areas of work and of recreation very clearly demarcated. And then you have, for instance, turkey and nippers beginning to defy that. So turkey and nippers are like the precursors to Bartleby. So you have someone who can only work half the day. So he's starting to encroach the bedroom or the, the home space into the workspace because there's something about this work, I think, demands what Wall Street demands, which is a total shutting down for all things that are not business and mm -hmm. to only be open during business hours. And so Turkey and Nippers have already allowed something of home, something that's not professional into the workspace and the narrator has been has allowed this he allows these peccadillos and we could talk about the narrator obviously in mm. a minute but so there's a kind of an understanding that the sacrosanct nature of wall street is something extremely unnatural and the narrator sees this and allows a certain amount of eccentricity on the part of his employees I guess the problem is then what happens when you take it too far and you are, you're the equivalent of sitting around in your pajamas and eating cereal and playing video games all day, but <laughs> at your place of work, but to be unemployed mm. while you're at work, what that might mean. Um, that's, that's hilarious. Yeah. Be before Google was offering napping pods and ping pong narrator of the story was ahead of his time. <laughs> well, exactly. And I mean, what is that designed to do except to get you to confuse work for home to, to get you to be willing to live at your job and to make mm -hmm. your job your life. So what happens when that unravels and you can't do that anymore and you're not, you're yeah. not living to work, you're working to live only the, I guess the only living that you can do is an extremely limited one within the parameters of an office building. I don't know. Yeah. I think of someone well, living think, in the cubicles. Yeah. I was thinking too, with Turkey and nippers, I was thinking about how, yeah, that is true. People really don't, when you in office jobs, there's a lot of being around the water cooler and these days the internet and you get, <laughs> there's a small amount of time that you actually use for work when you go to, when you go to an office job right. and then there's meetings, which are in a way themselves completely. It's just time wasting. It's a form of time wasting where people can feel important, but for the most part, time wasting. But in this case, I think what's interesting here is the, these are human copy machines. Basically it's a law office and, he brags in the beginning about being focused on material gain, but not actually overly ambitious and says that the easiest way of life is the best. And he's a safe sort of man. And he has a... This is the narrator, we should say. Yeah. And is he has a job that's not difficult, but pays well. And it's basically a government job in a way, because it was connected to a kind of sinecure, even though he lost it. And so he's an easy going guy in a way, but he does want to get his, his work done. So it's not like he's on some extreme. He's not cracking the whip with his em employees. But, but on the other hand, people there actually have to work. But I, I think part of it is the kind of work that's being done. They're taking legal documents and then making copies of them because there's no copy machines and then having to proofread them by reading them out loud. Some of them as long, I think he says as 500 pages, right? It sounds mm -hmm. just 
mind-numbingly dull so that what you, you think that the ideal sort of person to do that sort of thing would be someone like Bartleby, actually, right? Who seems to be free of these human traits, which define turkey and nippers and ginger nut. So I, what I put down in my notes is just a synopsis of that whole introduction where he describes these characters in the, kind of a very Dickensian way with their ticks and everything, right? It's it, He's setting us up for something that, that in a way, the story is not going to deliver on, as if the story is going to be centered around these types of colorful characters, when really it's not. But, but I think that he tolerates the eccentricities of these people. They're flawed, right? So they're colorful and they're very, very flawed, but he tolerates them because he finds them useful. He uses that word. What does he say? He says, he's basically, he says, whatever the failings of them, they were very useful to me. And then we get someone who comes in who in a way is, I think of Bartleby as an uncharacter. Hmm. If you were doing, if you set out a kind of literary exercise for yourself, we thought, well, what if I wanted to write the antithesis of a story that's focused on colorful characters? Some, someone who's basically just <laughs> almost like a blank space in the story. Right. How would I do that? In a way, that's the way I think of this as a kind of literary experiment on the part of Melville. And then see what happens. See, see what that does to the story. That's really interesting. And you're making me think of how. <laughs> from 2001 mm. as well. So the idea that we have these flawed humans who are all appetite is built into their names. One side note, whenever we would do this, I'd bring in ginger snaps for my students to eat while we would <laughs> discuss it. So they're all, they're all fluctuation and appetite. They're all the, the, the humors. Yeah. The, the things, the pesky things about human beings that science finds so difficult to, to program out of us. <laughs> and, and then Bartleby is, he's less interesting than Hal, but he's if a Xerox machine became self-aware and suddenly <laughs> decided to, to it's stop perfect. working which is mostly what Xerox machines do is not work. But that kind of emptiness, the idea that this is a machine that just you should be able to punch something in and get something out. And Bartleby seems like he's going to be the perfect Xerox machine. I think it's really interesting and fitting that he ends up being, like you say, this sort of black hole at the center of the story. I think that's why Melville's little postscript might fail. I'm, I'm not totally sure about this, but I think there's a chance that any effort to explain Bartleby actually cheapens the, the mystery of the story, but we can address that later. But do you think that there's anything pathological in the narrator? Do, do you think that his his complacency and the fact that he, in a way, he's the most interesting character, right? I mean, someone who moves their offices to get away from <laughs> a pesky employee is psychotically passive, if that's a term that, that works. <laughs> in a way, it's like Bartleby. Yeah. Yeah, he is strangely passive, and I suppose his passivity has worked in a way because he's ended up with the irritable, because of the brandy-like disposition of nippers and then turkeys and cautiousness and rashness afternoon. That that sort of thing, I think, I guess, is the result of his passivity and allowing these types of flawed but useful characters into his office. But it, yeah, it doesn't work when... The, the there's a sort of resistance in character, right? People's characters are are they're recalcitrant in a way. They're persistent. It's hard to change our personalities, and it also creates our personalities create problems for other people because they are they're often a reflection of defense mechanisms or their quirks that become annoying after a certain time, or they're they're ways in which we are very they reflect certain compulsions to do things in the same way repetitively that may not 
necessarily be all that productive. But if you have someone like the narrator who can just tolerate that stuff and say, you know, he calls it a good natural arrangement, this whole turkey being only productive in the morning. And I think, I guess, Nippers is only productive in the afternoon. Is that the way it works? Um, that's fine with him, but the, he's that's the resistance that he's used to dealing with and his passivity works because he can get some use out of these people but in the case of bartleby his passivity it's it's strange because it's in a way bartleby is very is very passive himself except in one important way but but the narrator's passivity can't cope with the absence of character with the uncharacter with the blank space or someone's defiance to not be anything in particular, not do anything. That's where his method of tolerance, right, of being the cool boss who's going to tolerate this type of thing just isn't going to work. Well, your characterization of Ginger Nut and Turkey and Nippers as being ruled almost like by the humors is exactly what I put down in, in the margins. The narrator is describing them eating these ginger nuts, which is are just ginger snaps. He lives then on ginger nuts, thought I. This is the narrator talking about Bartleby never eats a dinner, properly speaking. He must be a vegetarian then. But no, he never eats even vegetables. He eats nothing but ginger nuts. My mind then ran on in reveries concerning the probable effects upon the human constitution of living entirely on ginger nuts. Ginger nuts are so called because they contain ginger as one of their peculiar <laughs> constituents and the final flavoring one. Now, what was ginger? A hot, spicy thing. Was Bartleby hot and spicy? Not at all. Ginger then had no effect upon Bartleby. Probably he preferred it should have none. So... <laughs> Um, you know, I think this kind of plays into this idea that you're talking about of, of human behavior being rather difficult to change on our part and of the narrator's expectation that, that the, his employees are just going to have these problems, you know, th that nothing is really within their control that, um, why are they this way? Well, maybe, maybe it's because they eat too much ginger, you know, yeah. and, uh, and even their choice of eating too much ginger also seems to be beyond their control. Why do they eat so much Turkey? Because their name is Turkey. There seems mm. to be no first cause <laughs> only, uh, <laughs> only the fact of this is the way it is. You can't change it. You just have to work around it. Mm. And, um, and yeah. And so I, th I think what you're showing me is, and what is ironic is that Bartleby's, you would think it would play right into the narrator's hands, this idea of you just have someone who you just can't change. But but there is and, a limit. <laughs> yeah. And you have no explanation of his behavior. If I'm taking this idea of him not having a character in a way very seriously. So that's, or, and, and I may push it too far, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. But because, of course, one could argue, actually, Bartleby is a very interesting sort of character. But... I, and so I'm treating it as a, in, a, in him in a way as symbolic of characterlessness in a, in a literary sense. But but it what I'm trying to say is that yeah, part of the appeal of the concept of character is that it it explains people's behavior, and you can say someone behaves this way because of this personality trait. That's just who they are, and their behaviors are expressions of that. And with Bartleby, there is no, if there is no character, there's no explanation of his behavior. And, and the narrator even tries to get him to say, tell me, aren't you going to tell me something about your history? Tell me why you prefer not to do X, Y, and Z. Explain yourself. And that's one of the, it's important that Bartleby uses this word prefer 
as opposed to say something like desire or ought. We can talk about that in a second, why this word prefer. But it's also important that he he doesn't, for most of the story, he doesn't explain himself. There, there are hints of him explaining himself at the end, but for the most part, he is just, it's almost godlike in a way. He just is, he is that he is, or he is, there's no explanation. He's just um, kind of bare fact in a way. Yeah. In in one of the classes in which I studied this as a student, it was a grad school class that was really fabulous about these various 19th century American stories. Bartleby was one, Wakefield was another by Hawthorne. And I guess some of them came later too. But this idea of the retreat from society and the sort of blank in the middle of a story as being a fundamental element of this character mystery. Why does this character do the things that he does? And, and it's something in teaching this story that I, I brought up with my students a lot. And we would, it usually went into this discussion of fate and free will and to what extent Bartleby can be seen as being in control of his own actions. And I think that this is where the dead letter office ruins the arc of my argument for these students who I think really want to pathologize characters. And so in the end, if you just read the dead letter postscript, they all say, oh, okay, this is because he he had a chemical imbalance because it was really depressing to work in the dead letter office. And so he just didn't want to live anymore. And this (laughs) immediately figured Mm -hmm. him out. And that's why I think that ending part doesn't work. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's very lame if that's, if, and the narrator probably, yeah, that to the narrator, it is that is what it is. It's just a it's just a psychological well, it, and that's, explanation. Yeah. Right. And that's exactly what the narrator wants. He eats too much ginger. Yeah. He has a chemical imbalance. This is one of the things too that really bothered me about that that Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock. Did, mm. did you ever watch that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked um, that for the most part. So I, I liked it a lot too, but the thing that bothered me about it and I didn't really know why until I read Bartleby in that grad school class, was that he calls himself like something like a high-functioning sociopath mm-hmm. or something like that. And Is that what he calls himself? Something. Or uh, autistic or... Yeah, he has a label. And like Asperger's. Or- yeah, and that kind of takes all the complexity out of that character for me when you're going to view him through that lens. I would rather have the Bartleby as a completely blank slate and not know anything about his past as a way of... Right, right. I, d- I think it's important in a way that he remained something symbolic. Otherwise, the story starts to become less interesting and falls apart. I know papers have been written about this, relating it to schizophrenia or to autism. And I do, that's recognizable to me because, because of the work that I've done for so long, being a director of a transitional home for the mentally ill, I have seen people... I have <laughs> seen people basically stare at a wall for a long period of time. Um, sure. And it, it can be a lot of different things. It can be schizophrenia. It can be hallucination. It can be, it can be obsessive compulsive disorder. It's easy to look at someone like Bartleby and want to give a kind of uh, psychological explanation of him. And it, um, you know, there might be some, utility to that for understanding the story but i think for the most part i think he has to serve a kind of um symbolic function or else the the story loses its power as you were pointing out the one thing i was actually thinking of beginning the episode by asking you what do you think he's thinking about in his dead wall reveries when he's just staring at the brick wall It, it 
Is he thinking about something? What's Bartleby actually doing? What's going on in his head, in his imagination? Or is that the wrong, is that the wrong question? So I couldn't, I, I couldn't say that I've ever thought really deeply about the nature of what he might be thinking of other than a sort of feeling of regret for his life thus far. And I don't know. I mean, what does a person with no past to us, you know, what can we imagine that they're thinking about? It's an interesting idea. But well, um, yeah, suppose you had no personality, what would you be thinking about? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and we know that he's not even thinking about eating. And I guess that would be the one thing that you would have to think about just to keep you going, right? I, I think that's a very important point because normally when we think about a reverie, right, we're thinking about something like a fantasy. And our fantasies are often about wish fulfillment. They're about desire. Mm. So this is normally the way what we would think someone is doing if they're staring off into space thinking. We're probably, we'd be thinking about, we'd expect them to be thinking about um, getting something that they want. Maybe their aspirations. It could be desire. It could be longing. It could be what they're going to have for lunch. It could be anything like that. But that's not, that's obviously not what, Bartleby is doing and and it's that's why I think it's important this word prefer it's not desire or want it's prefer so we can talk about that in a second but so whatever he's doing there it's it's got to be the fantasy version or, or it's got to correspond to you know if we fantasize about desire it's the dead wall reverie is Bartleby's version of that with respect to preference where the preference is for to be left alone and to have no desire, essentially. Yeah, which I think relates um, to the narrator's perceiving in him something essentially genteel, right? Which is also related to the nature of his refusal. I, I mm. think that's the only hint of anything that we get about his personality. And I don't know if that's because of an inherent gentility in reticence and in the absence of perceivable desire. Yeah. Gentility is all about concealing the, the depth and of our passions or, or it's, you know, genteel manners are shows of restraint and a lot of class, a lot of status signals involve, you know, socially a lot of status signals involve displays of restraint, even like lifting the finger when you're drinking a, from a teacup. That's about doing something extra that has nothing to do with the actual, it's not just about getting tea into your face, right? It's, uh, <laughs> anyway, sorry. Did you well, and it's me? also visually, you know, you're, you're refusing it by holding onto it with as few fingers that's as possible. Great. Yes, that's great. What, what you're doing is you're not grasping. It's not like you're an animal with paws and you're just using all of your, your strength and your grip to get something into your mouth. You know, it's not functioning appetitively to, to, to you know, get what I'm saying. Hmm, absolutely. Yeah. And that, uh, that reminds me. So, so we do get at this first sight of Bartleby, the narrator does remark that he's pallidly neat, pitiably respectable, incurably forlorn. Later, um, more of a straightforward reference to what he sees as his gentility. But oddly enough, in describing his work manner at the very beginning of the story, when he comes in and does his work faithfully, the narrator does describe it as being Appetitive. He did an extraordinary quantity of writing, as if long famishing for something to copy. He seemed to gorge himself on my documents. There was no mm. pause for digestion. He ran a day and night line, copying by sunlight and by candlelight. I should have been quite delighted with his application had he been cheerfully industrious, but he wrote on silently, palely, mechanically. So we have a lot of things in here, which are so the 
appetitive quality, but in a very mechanical way, which is very jarring, and also the day and night work. So first Bartleby violates the the rules of the bedroom community by by working late and intruding the business district on it. And then he goes back and intrudes with, with the, the bedroom into um, into Wall Street. Um, maybe I'm not thinking of his gentility. Um, I mean, I think there is some of that, but maybe his mildness, the fact that he's, he, oh yes, he says his cadaverously gentlemanly nonchalance. There you go. And then he says it would not be thought of for a moment that Bartleby was an immoral person. So it's interesting because he's sleeping there and he's walking around in his under things and yet the narrator knows intuitively that nothing hinky is going on there's no hanky panky or anything like that happening um so it, it's it's strange <laughs> i don't know yeah yeah so i'd like to take a break to talk about the sponsor for this show better help that's h e l p as someone who works as a therapist i know that one of the biggest problems that people have is actually finding a therapist, having access to a therapist that works with their insurance, and getting to appointments, taking time out of their day to actually go to an office. One of the things I like about this episode sponsor, BetterHelp, is that they're expanding access to licensed professional counselors by providing a way to connect in a safe and private online environment. So if there's something preventing you from achieving your goals or something interfering with your happiness, please go to betterhelp.com slash subtext and BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses and you can schedule either video or phone sessions. BetterHelp is committed to getting you a therapist who is the right match for you. So if you need to change counselors, that's uh, easy and free. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash subtext. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash subtext okay back to the show you wonder to what extent right the narrator everything is a projection of the narrator and even of course the story has been and can be read as a story of a double for the narrator as some split off part of himself that has come to to visit him and that his he's mm. progressively induced to be compassionate towards that part of himself which which of course he is not within his own personality and, and character it's something that's just pushed away whatever it is it, this maybe it's a simply a preference not to be lead a life which is all kind of busy work or something like that or something or lead a life which is all copying and all repetition and nothing genuinely spontaneous and new and creative the point in the story where he finds him in the in the office and then he has those this is actually shortly after the what you've just cited about the cadaverously gentlemanly nonchalance and then the talk of wall street busy during the day and empty at night but there is a he'll say he'll basically describe when he realizes bartleby is making his home of the office and that he is the sole spectator of a solitude, the solitude being the way Wall Street is at night. 
And and then I think he thinks about him as being someone who's very lonely and, and very alone. And then he'll say, for the first time in my life, a feeling of overpowering, stinging melancholy seized me. And, and then he'll call this a fraternal melancholy, which seems to suggest that it's not just a melancholy on behalf of Bartleby, but a melancholy for his own situation, which is something that Bartleby makes more more obvious, right? It's mm. something that's been externalized. Well, you're making me think of an even more extreme reading of this, which is that the narrator has an office alone and none of these people <laughs> exactly. exist. Yeah. And they're all elements of his personality, of course, even having yeah. the little boy, you know, the industrious little boy working there. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what is the, you know, what, what, what is this whole thing about <laughs> preferring I, I would prefer not to what is going on with that i'm wondering what trying to get into melville's head and thinking what what was his i'm wondering where the story came from and how this kind of um because this is sort of right the central conceit of the story is someone who, mm-hmm. who walks into an office and in and when he receives a request to do something that is part of his job and that in a way is most of us would see as a normal thing to do as an obligation the kind of thing that would mean we're playing by the rules it wouldn't occur to us not to do it he can bartleby can up and say i would prefer not to and throw a wrench into things i was thinking of this before in terms of introducing an un character into a story to see the effect and of course it has a you know it drives a plot obviously when someone throws a complete wrench and everything it's perfectly good for the plot the grammatical construction of it is a negative Mm. so (laughs) it's also it's it maintains that emptiness that you're talking about exactly yeah and again the preference like that that word preference is very i think is important because instead of i i don't want to or Something more, but you know, the word prefer is more formal and it's not, it, it doesn't seem to fall within the, it's, it's not exactly like desire because we think of desire as a positive thing. There's something that I want, and this is just a completely a negative. Mm-hmm. This is, I would prefer to remain motionless. I would prefer to do nothing. And it's hard to think of desire or appetite as simply directed towards nothing so i think that's part of what why the word prefer is is very important and that and why again the dead wall reverie is not the typical sort of fantasy and and so Mm. if there were actual windows and um bartleby could look out into the world that would be something representative of aspiration of being able to look forward and being able to look out onto something but if you're looking at a blank wall aspiration and desire are foreclosed i I love when the narrator um says it's not what landscape painters would call life like it doesn't have much of what landscape painters or does he say i thought he said something like deficient or deficient in oh okay or or landscape Painters might say it's deficient in life, something like that. It's just so funny that he even he even refracts it through through art or through an artificial form of nature rather than actual nature. Right. He doesn't say you can't see any trees, you can't see any living thing. He says a landscape painter would find this deficient for his subject. <laughs> um, this view might have been considered rather tame than otherwise. Deficient, what landscape painters call quote 
life. Um, so I, <laughs> I love that because it's, it's sort of ironic or he's making this purely to be something funny or amusing when, of course, it's really kind of an oppressive <laughs> environment to mm -hmm. work in. You've got an office that is all the windows basically open onto walls. So you get nothing of the outside world. And the narrator's the narrator's attitude towards that is just one of kind of bemusement in a way. That's he's joking about something being deficient of life. And then yeah, as you point out, referring that back to landscape painters. And the intrusion of art is a strange thing too, because this is it's essentially a factory. It's a factory kind of environment or it's a place that is is made possible because of the explosion of factories, not the literal explosion, but the proliferation of, of, of factories mm -hmm. uh, during this time. And this is, I guess, in a way, it's a factory of, of, of ideas, but of stale ideas and of stock lawyerese, stock phrases. Mm -hmm. So the repeated, I would prefer not to phrase, what I love about that, there's the idea of preferring as if he's opened the space for a choice where there is none. Something that, like you say, want or desire, that almost implies less of a choice. This is what I want to do yeah. or I have yeah. to do. So for something to be preferable, it's that you have an option and you're choosing to take one or the other. So he's opening this space of an option where there really isn't one. He's there to do work. And yet, verbally, he opens it, and then, in fact, he makes it happen. <laughs> he sort of speaks this option into existence by really choosing not to. But anyway, but what I love about that repeatedness of it is the fact that it seems like he might have picked it up from a law document or something. And, and there is this precedent for these stock phrases with, I think it's Turkey saying, with submission, sir. He says that a bunch of times, which is funny because he's not a very submissive guy in the afternoons. So whenever mm. they mean to indicate whenever the narrator means to indicate what time of day it is, he'll portray Nippers as saying something similar to that, something docile and submitting to the narrator's opinion. And then Turkey will be really violent and say, you know, that he will, he'll punch Bartleby or whatever. And then the opposite for Turkey in the morning, he'll say with submission, sir, which I love. It's like submitting a, you know, there's, there's the idea of submission to is interesting submission to mm -hmm. someone else's will yeah. or i don't know i'm sure there's something lawyery about submission as well or just submitting documents to be reviewed i don't know yeah it's it's that weird idea that the narrator has about people being useful to him yeah so this this idea that these different the characters in the beginning are useful to him and that's that's why they can go ahead and be eccentric and in the same way, he rationalizes some of Bartleby's eccentricities later on by saying that they're involuntary, and then he'll say, he is useful to me. And his whole attitude when Bartleby arrives is very, what's the word, is, is exploitative the word? It's, you know, the, what he does is he takes the guy and he puts him behind the screen <laughs> mm -hmm. so that within his own office... So that he can, he doesn't have to, the screen is to, quote, entirely isolate Bartleby from my sight, though not remove him from my voice, and thus, in a manner, privacy and society were conjoined. He needs to be within call of the narrator's voice, because in case there is any trifling thing that had to be done, he uses this word trifling. So he, it's this, he's really maximizing the utility aspect of the relationship and he he wants to minimize the impact that 
the other person will have on him while maximizing the ability to actually get them to do things for him. So you need someone that he doesn't have to hear or see, but they will hear him when when he needs something from. So I was just I was trying to get at what you were thinking about with this word submission. Yeah, I like that a lot. There's also this I was thinking too of the fact that everybody starts picking up the word prefer in their speech after mm-hmm. Bartleby starts using it. And it's a very sticky, sticky phrase that everyone starts starts using. And um that might be another element of submission that, you know, Bartleby ends up having a sway over everyone else. He's inducing people to to copy him. Um, so I think that's the other that, yeah, I forgot that's, to get back to what you were saying, which is really interesting to me. I, to me, I hadn't thought about it, which is the idea that prefers the legalistic term that Bartleby has picked up from all his copying. It's as if the copy machine read some of the text that you're trying to put through it and then changed its operating procedure <laughs> according to mm-hmm. what was in the law document or something and it's glitching in that interesting sort of way and yeah. then is inducing others to with that same virus let's say but go ahead yeah that's great that's a great way of putting it i guess you, you mentioned something about um something about involuntary behavior on the part of bartleby at the beginning of what you said before yeah the narrator um says it's involuntary this is just yeah and and that 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 stuck out to me because i'm i'm thinking about this idea of choice and having options and i guess this is getting to the <laughs> i don't mean to constantly be like well in my 10th grade class that i used to run <laughs> um but this is one of the things that you know that we talked about a lot are bartleby's behaviors the result of choice or how much choice does he have i mean how much can we buy into this idea of the narrators that you're just a product of all these forces working upon you, whether they be Wall Street or or the presence of ginger in your food or whatever. Because it seems to me that Bartleby is fated from the beginning to be tragic is too grandiose of a word, but it, it's he's almost he's the Chekhov's gun that gets fired right away. <laughs> like he's he uh the, the industrious guy who we know is going to break down and not do any work. And I guess I, I don't want us to have to circle back to this idea of pathologizing him and saying he's a depressive and therefore doesn't have any choice in the fact that he doesn't want to work anymore. But but I'm interested in that kind of tension in the story between something that seems like a compulsion on the part of Bartleby to refuse work and mm-hmm. at the same time speaking in a manner that implies choice. Yeah. I mean, I think this, you can read the story as a reflection on the possibility of freedom or what freedom might mean because if we one of the problems of talking trying to understand something like free will is it seems to suggest if we are going to be completely free it seems like we might have to be unmotivated right because to the extent that we're motivated we are driven by desire and you know desire for things outside of us this is what the philosopher Kant called heteronomy, right? Other things outside of us sort of pull our strings. That's what desire does to us, and that undermines our ability to be free. So how do we get beyond that? The traditional philosophical explanation is just that we we can be reasonable. So we have the capacity to recognize what is good and to be rational, to, to reason about how to get that. So we're, we can be reason-responsive and good responsive 
And even though in a way we are beholden to such things, it's not like we have free will to say, to say which reasons work and which reasons don't or what's good and what's not good. We're beholden to the way things are. There's some sort of autonomy and some sort of freedom in the, um, the ability to do that. And that, and the autonomy arises only in situations where one is ethical, essentially, only in situations, right, right, morality and and autonomy just are the same thing. And in contexts where morality is not at stake, freedom is irrelevant. And if we um, do something immoral, we are that is the most unfree thing we can do. And the, the very possibility of freedom <laughs> lies in the possibility of being ethical. So I bring all that stuff up because when we think about this word prefer, it seems to stand outside of all the different possibilities that we might typically think of as motivating a person, right? What, what is Bartleby after? Is he after, he's not after dinner or getting something that he positively wants He's not going to listen to reason, right? There's a scene where the narrator says, he says, we're going to, when Bartleby says he prefers not, basically tries to reason with him and says, every copyist is bound to do X. Or why don't you understand that such and such is the quote unquote irresistible conclusion of an argument? So the suggestion there is that there is, is that one one can appeal to a sense of obligation one can appeal to rationality and that is not something that is going to work with bartleby so his whatever preferences for him it's not if it amounts to freedom it's not freedom in some traditional rational sense it's not connected to obligation but it's also not connected to just doing whatever the hell he wants whatever he desires because desire doesn't really seem to be a part of it, right? There's a wall between him and desire and what's happening is entirely negative. And this may be kind of the head, head of gabbler thing, right? Where mm-hmm. true freedom means leaving all possibility open, which means doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's the only way you can be free. And that's the only way you can actually resist this, the oppressiveness of life. <laughs> Yeah, it's like freedom so, from action. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there might be a point to that. I don't know. You're just trying you, to justify the fact that you never do any work and you just sit yeah, and exactly. <laughs> Well, maybe, you know, maybe the key to life is just going on strike. It's um, really funny because with a bunch of teenage boys, you never have to explain why a character is just sitting and staring at the wall. I know. <laughs> That's the funniest part uh, of teaching this to them. Um, yeah, what's not normal about that? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> he just doesn't want to do a boring, stupid job. <laughs> right. Um, you have to explain to them that wall is not a TV screen with video games on it. <laughs> um, yeah. So you could see this as another manifestation of death drive, right? So mm. when we talk about human motivation, we often think that we have to talk about pleasure and desire and not much else, maybe status which is another thing that Bartleby is obviously not after a recognition, but, and so that's why your word compulsion, I think is, you know, it's, um, it's hard for us to resist. It's, <laughs> it's, it's natural to, to think in those terms because it does seem, 
if there's a death drive aspect of this, which is just to say, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to have desire. I don't want to engage, be engaged with life. Then it'll, it seems like a very mechanical, lifeless thing that's happening. And it's still, we can still entertain the possibility that this is the only thing that one can do freely, but it's a dark possibility, right? The idea that freedom is weirdly wrapped up in mechanical compulsion in the sort of eradication of subjectivity of desire of interest and status all those things because those things are too um in a way more forced right it's better Mm -hmm. to be just some mechanical thing in nature a billiard ball being shoved around or a planet subject to gravitational forces there's something freer about that maybe than being this being with a subjectivity who's beset with desires and indigestion like nippers and irascibility and all the things that that make us characters it's funny then that the you're shedding a little light now for me on the dead letter office which maybe we should yeah turn our attention to which is about thwarted desire right i mean it's Mm -hmm. kind of like he works in a sort of prehistoric version of the craigslist misconnections page (laughs) um that's great yeah. So, uh, do you want to read a little bit of yeah, that passage first, and then? Yeah. Um, so the narrator says that he received this this report about one element of Bartleby's history that he was able to ferret out. He says Bartleby had been a subordinate clerk in the dead letter office at Washington, from which he had been suddenly removed by a change in the administration. When I oh, so he's a government appointee. Um, when I think over this rumor, I cannot adequately express the emotions which seize me. Dead letters. Does it not sound like dead men? Conceive a man by nature and misfortune prone to a pallid hopelessness. Can any business seem more fitted to heighten it than that of continually handling these dead letters and assorting them for the flames? For by the cartload they are annually burned. Sometimes from out the folded paper the pale clerk takes a ring. The finger it was meant for perhaps molders in the grave. A banknote sent in swiftest charity. He whom it would relieve, nor eats nor hungers any more. Pardon for those who died despairing, hope for those who died unhoping. Good tidings for those who died stifled by unrelieved calamities. On errands of life, these letters speed to death. Ah, Bartleby. Ah, humanity. <laughs> <laughs> best, best last line in the mm. world. Um, yeah, I like your characterization as the, what is it, working in the misconnections department at Craigslist? <laughs> um, because these letters reflect people's desires and aspirations, right? Someone is there, they're, is someone sending a wedding ring through the mail? That's really interesting. It's <laughs> um, an interesting way to do it. Someone is sending money to family members that that needs money. So people are trying to gratify desires and hopes, or they're expressing those desires and hopes. Yeah, no one receives Sorry. bad news from these letters, do they? Right. Um, they're the, all expressions of charity, love, yeah. hope. But somehow, you know, the letters are undeliverable. So apparently, whoever is going to receive them, these good things, they've died. That's the idea. Mm-hmm. So the dead letters are correspond to dead people. And so what intervenes here between our, between us and our aspirations, even if we, it, it could be death, but it could be just fate. Bureaucracy. It's, yeah. But so... In a way, Bartleby in that dead letters office is in a 
the position of fate or death. I was thinking about this at, when I, at my second reading, I was thinking, huh, what if, what if I wanted to tell a sort of parable about death coming into the world, having a kind of Pinocchio moment and saying, yeah, I don't want to just be death anymore. The guy in the, in the black robe with the scythe. Um, I, uh, I want to see what it's like to be real. I want to see what it's like to be a human so i'm going to take human form and try to change your to see what brand. the world is yeah see what the world is all about and and go into the world it's a pinocchio mm -hmm. thing the boy wanted to be wanted to be real and not just wouldn't anymore but in this case not just be be the be death but mm -hmm. to be alive and so you could read it that way as a, a poignant story of what happens when death tries to become incarnate and live and and the way in which it falls apart and it just can't work. It, but but anyway, I think the important thing is that this connects up to Bartleby's problem with aspiration, right? So he to look out a window onto a world in which there are living things, right? That would be reflective of aspiration. To look at a dead wall is a reflection of preference, which is to say a lack of desire, desire to do nothing, a desire not to ha not have desires and not have aspirations. Because, because in the dead letter office, one sees the true fate of such things, which is that they always come to naught. We all die or desire is never fully fulfilled. It, it wants something that it can't actually fully have. So Bartleby, even if he's not literally death or not literally fate, psychologically comes to reflect that insight and in and Bartleby's behavior is meant to be a manifestation of or a personification of fate or death something like that i like that a lot i i think that's the same is true or maybe even doubly true for the narrator in confronting mm -hmm. bartleby right i mean I, I made that bureaucracy comment kind of flippantly but it occur occurs to me that in a way, bureaucracy is like institutionalized fate, you know? Mm, um, very nice. And yeah. in a way, bureaucracy is what Bartleby represents for the narrator. <laughs> he's coming up against, it's like dealing with a DMV. You just, <laughs> you, he's, I'm, I'm full of, of epigrammatic insights yeah. <laughs> tonight yeah. um, and bizarre metaphors. But anyway, he's coming into contact with the immovable object that he can't, he can't avoid, he can't, uh, he tries to run away and he can't, he, he sort of runs yeah. away, but it's dealing with the thing that refuses to deal with you or to, refuses to treat you like a person. It's as if, you know, his practice of the law and his holding the law loosely has now sort of detached and become a man. Then he has to deal with all of the institutionalized elements of the profession that this man is in. And maybe those that he subjects others to by nature of being an administrator or whatever, an actor in the law is now sort so of. So you're saying Bartleby is him. a personification of the law? Could um, be. I'm, yeah. I, I don't, you know, it's, it's. No, I think that's great. And that this does, is a real flight of fancy on my part. I think that's spot on. I mean, it connects to him as a personification of fate or death or law, and, and that fits very nicely with its concept of preference. But, Mm. And that, and the idea that you had that he picked up the idea of preference from reading too much law. Yeah, so maybe he, he's not the, the Xerox machine becoming cognizant. He's like the the law code of New York, which is <laughs> right, just as right. heavy as a Xerox machine. Yeah, that's very interesting because with the law, you can again. This is desire is irrelevant, and even ultimately reasons and obligations and everything else is irrelevant at bottom because. What is written is what is written, and it, it, the law may not be ethical, the law may not be right, but it is definitive and final.
Mm. And it's like, you know, the kids and you say, you have to do this. And the, the kids say, why? And you just say, because, because <laughs> I prefer you do this, do it that there way. You go. And that's it. Yeah. Great. Well, should we stop there? Yeah. I think, I think it was good. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. To get ad-free episodes and episodes of our after show, Postscript, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Also, this podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other Airwave shows like Food with former New York Times food journalist and best-selling author Mark Bittman and Movie Therapy, in which Siskel and Ebert meets Dear Abby. Thank you.